The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Did I go to a car tour? If I go like that, like, oh, oh sorry, okay. sorry, sorry, sorry. If I go yeah. like that, that what? means I don't know anything about it and you just go <laughs> like that. Okay. Happy New Year. It's February. It's 2021. This is gone by lunchtime. I'm Toby Manhire. That's Annabelle Lee Matha. Kia ora. Kia ora. Tēnā kōdua. Tēnā tātou. There's Ben Thomas. Happy New Year, everyone. Uh, Jonathan is on uh, engineering knobs and buttons. Welcome to him. Uh, thanks to Flick Electric for their sponsorship and a big thank you and warm New Year. To the spin-off members, our extended whānau. 2021 has begun like a tribute act to 2020. We've had little little flare-ups of COVID. We've had um, housing crisis, deeper than ever. And we've had the National Party shooting itself in the foot with a bazooka. <laughs> they, they were yesterday being... Um, Auckland anniversary day, but all was always happening in Wellington. The Basin Reserve, the National Party gathered for their summer caucus retreat. I think it, be, I think it was going to be up in Whangarei, but with the little the, the bit of the COVID, 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 they held it at the Basin Reserve instead, world's greatest cricket ground. And Judith Collins, the leader of the party, began by telling everyone gathered there that the party would not be leaping at distractions, would not be taking the bait. And then, in this kind of Great act of almost uh, political jujitsu. They illustrated that point <laughs> by implying, suggesting Shane Ritty, Dr. Shane, the reliable, lovable Dr. Shane, one of the stars of 2020, now the deputy leader of the National Party, insinuated that Labour ministers had controlled the message around the little bit of. Uh, Hinky Pinky in the um, Grand Millennium Hotel in the MIQ with the delivery of the wine and all that sort of stuff. Um, and he managed to kind of achieve precisely the thing they'd been warning about. Just asking some questions. Just asking How some questions. How do you questions. manage to speed pick up somebody <laughs> in a managed isolation quarantine facility? What have, what have you written on the back of your mask? You know, how do you arrange for the wine liaison? I think these are questions that the, the public has a right to know the answer to. Annabelle, how are you feeling? How confident are you about Her Majesty's opposition? I was excited to read Judith Collins' announcement that National will be contesting 
the Māori seats, perhaps not all of them, but You're working building, towards. Up, building mm. up capacity mm. there. I think that's a good thing. Mm. think that, um, well, for a start, beggars can't be choosers, and obviously they need to get votes wherever they can, so there's an air of you know, pragmatism to it, I imagine. But, mm. but I also think it's important because, you know, besides the issue of having a, a contest of ideas in those seats, so long as they're not dangerous ones a la the New Zealand party, that um, that Māori should be able to to vote for, you know, the candidate of their choice and not be excluded from voting for a national candidate if they happen to be registered in a, in a Māori mm. electorate. And I, I also think that it enhances the mana of the Māori seats when they're being fully contested, and I think it's a lot harder to argue to disestablish those seats when you have more parties contesting in them, so I think it's a it's a really good thing. My only concern is that it has to be an and and approach to those to Maori representation for national. It can't be like okay, we're going to round up Dr. Shane and his homies and dump them all in the Maori seats. You still have to have Maori standing in general seats for national, mm. but it's a great way of bringing through um, um, new Maori. MPs blooding them up on the campaign trail, all of that sort of stuff. So I, I welcome that move. It's been a while, hasn't it? It's been, I think it was 2002, the last time that mm. National stood in the in the Māori seats. And then, of course, we had, was, it, was the Ottawa speech 2005? Yeah, uh, so under Dom Brash, National uh, took a, a great animus <laughs> towards the Māori seats, mm. said that they were race, race-based division, special privilege, etc., and their policy became to abolish the Māori seats. And mm. they campaigned on that in 2005 pretty strongly. Under John Key, um, that the, the goal of abolition uh, was retained, and that was also a campaign policy in 2008. But in coalition or in partnership with the Māori Party, uh, John Key moderated that policy to the eventual goal is the abolition of the Māori seats, but only with the consent of Māori, yep. only when Māori want it. And that's remained the position to this day. And if that's your position, it, it seems, and, and in fact, even if that's not your position, it seems insane not to run candidates in those seats, because all it effectively means is more billboards and more people at meetings, uh, you know, promoting National Party talking points, which is, of course, what you want in an election, where you want as much coverage as possible. Mm. It's MMP, every vote counts, mm. every opportunity to spread your message counts. Mm. And obviously, the more that the people who are hearing the message can relate to the people who are promoting it, you know, in their local communities, the better. So, I mean, this is a bit of a no-brainer for National. Pretty amazing it's taken them this long to, to, to mm. come to that mm. conclusion. It's sort of... there. It, it, there was a sort of widening kind of... Um, of, of, of Nationals' sort of position, I guess, under Judith Collins, you know, a, a bit a bit more sort of centrist, a bit more lefty. She was talking, well, you know, lefty. Um, she, she, was, <laughs> she was talking to Rotary about, you know, about the need for house prices to, to perhaps, you know, stabilise or even come down. Did the old John Key sort of... Um, tactic of trying to reach across the aisle and saying we'll support urgent legislation to to rezone uh, urban centres yeah. um, in advance of the national policy statement, which the government passed last year, coming into effect, which is about four, so four or five years away. So, that, you know, they are trying to tack towards the centre. It's not completely natural Well, when <laughs> you're Collins. on 25% in the polls, you realise you need to get a 
kind of a, a, a broader coalition within your own party, right? And I guess one of the things during those years, some of those key years, when you had the Māori Party as a support party, then there was a pragmatism attached. It obviously suited the Māori Party for the National Party to be there and not to be there. In a, you know, there the, the, the were still Māori electorate uh, MPs represented within, uh, within the wider government. You know, the, the thing is that um, National has a lot of work to do in the Māori seats, but to be fair, yep. they have a lot to, of work to do in, in all of the seats. But I think it's important to remember that, you know, the Māori seats weren't established by Māori. They were established by Pākehā to ring-fence the Māori vote when Māori had, you know, were a much greater portion of the New Zealand population. But, you know, in the modern environment, they've come to represent something very important, which which can't be achieved by Māori who stand in general seats. Māori in general seats is not enough. Uh, you know, the Māori seats represent the, the specific representation of Māori electorates, and what's good for Māori electorates is not necessarily good for general electorates and vice versa. So they remain vitally important in, in any moves that, you know, enhance the manner of those seats is a good thing. That principle of uh, Māori representation uh, being insured is also seen on a local level uh, where there are some Māori wards and there was obviously that uh, the controversy around New Plymouth um, Yesterday, Nanaia Mohuta, in her capacity as a local government minister, announced legislation to change this, this this particular rule, which means that even if a council votes to install uh, Māori representation, uh, Māori wards, that uh, you just need to get a poll with 5%, I think, I think is the rule. It's sort of a, a quirk of the system that means that it's too easy to th- to throw out those decisions by council. Mm. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's been a long time coming that change. I understand that um, that was put into the local government act back in two thousand and two when it was reformed, and it was something that Labor actually wanted um, as part of its coalition with the alliance. Mm. Um, so it's been a long time coming, and again, it's a good thing because, as the saying goes, when it comes to Māori consultation, um, the the quick way is the long way, and the long way is the quick way. So to have Māori at the table in council, I think, is going to have, you know, a tangible impact in terms of being an early warning system for both Māori communities and the council itself in terms of RMA, all of that stuff, you know. Ihu was a great example of if there had been better representation at council, a lot of the the heartache and money that's been poured into this issue could have possibly been avoided. But having Māori at the table of council in 2021 has to be a no-brainer, doesn't it? Well, I mean, ideally all councils would be abolished. And <laughs> 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 well, no, I mean, uh, I, I think... You know, it's, it's sort of a serious point in the sense that, um, you know, councils aren't really democratic at all. You know, they're, they're basically creatures of statute you know, created by the Local Government Act, and there's nothing particularly democratic about them, right? Kate Newton did a great piece for Radio New Zealand um, a year or two back 
about how even in the brownest, poorest areas of Auckland, the most participation in local government in terms of submissions, in terms of testimony at committees and things, came from the rich white residents mm. of those areas. Yeah. So there's underrepresentation at every level in every area of local government. And it's not a democracy, it's a gerontocracy uh, run by old, rich, <laughs> white property owners and ratepayers. Not we, a gerontoc. I don't know, is that it? Shouldn't that be a soft G if it's like geriatric? Is Geront or Geront? I, I, I don't know. Say it again. I said gerontocracy. I don't know. Maybe, so, maybe you're right. Oh, geriatric. Yeah, right. You might yeah, be right. No, no. Look, this is a learning experience for all of us. Get in touch. How do you get in touch with us? Send us a tweet. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I personally think that, you know, you would get better representation if you also had, you know, a youth ward for, mm. you know, people under 22 to opt into. For mm. the youngies. Mm. Yeah, but I, I'm not sure, you know. So what else? I, are you going to carve up the entire population into particular groups and then have them represented? Yeah, well, I, I like yeah, it. I mean, like that, the that's the that's and the Well, that's what we do yeah. in Parliament with MMP, right? And there's no particular reason. <laughs> there's no particular reason not to do that in local government. But the, um, but the ultimate problem that you're the the, the gerontocracy you're talking about is that the people who, who are moneyed and of particular age are massively overrepresented. But that so MMP is is, is is has the same problem. Well, the thing well, is, it, it, it has it has less of a problem than local government because you know local government is just small enough in scale that you know the cranks can have an effective voice. And, and have their own way, and it's just large enough that that causes problems for everyone else. Okay. But in terms of, you know, so there's no reason not to divide up wards by constituencies that aren't just geographic in local government. On the other hand, I'm not sure that um, Māori wards are the best way to give effect to a kind of treaty partnership at a local government level. Um, I would have thought that if if what you're looking at was treaty partnership and you know, you're looking at what local government does, which is administer sort of local resource management um, issues about the area itself, that you'd be, you'd have something instead like an appointed iwi representative, you know, sitting on the council rather than... How would you appoint them democratically? Ben's doing it. Like he's doing, he's deciding whether or not who gets to... Well, no, Um, I... Is he like long listing and then short listing? I, no, I, I, he's going to consult, won't he? To be fair, I don't think it's just about the treaty relationship, although that's a huge and important part of it. It's also about reflecting what those communities, and you're right, there is really low level of participation for Māori in local government, and it's that whole if you see it, you can be it thing. If you see Māori standing in those wards and becoming active in the community and being voices for the community at the council level, that's a great way of encouraging Māori to participate in that process. And the, and it's democratic. And you know, We've got things like the Māori statutory board, but they're appointed, they're not voted for, mm. so... And it's, I mean, it is a serious point, isn't it, that there is a great deal of dysfunction in our local government bodies in in New Zealand at the moment, like see Tauranga, for example, Um, and with the demands to build infrastructure and solve the housing crisis, you do, the, the, the failures at local government level aren't trivial. No, that's right, and which is why it should be abolished, right? Every, every but so seriously, though, what are you going to replace it with when you abolish it? A, Nothing. A, a, depu- a department of parks and okay. sewerage, right, okay. you know, department of internal affairs, yeah. something like that. Yeah. No, I mean, if if you think about it, all of the department all, of Christmas all, lights, 
mm-hmm. and all of the festivals. Pre- the most pressing infrastructure <laughs> and pipes. The most pressing infrastructure problems we have in New Zealand are all the result of them being under the control of local government. The housing crisis is a result of incredibly restrictive planning um, and consenting over the past two decades. You can't walk down the street and run into without having a pipe exploded the, in your the, face. Yeah. The, the, the water but also infrastructure. If you're lucky, it's, it's water houses, and, and not poo. Well, yeah, but that, I mean that's a tr- that's a water. trivial marginal issue compared to the ability of people to build more houses. And so the, seventy-five thousand houses. And and, and the. Well, yeah, but that's, that doesn't create any more houses whether you sell off or keep, you know, state houses. Um, and, you know, th- yeah, and it's not just Wellington. Wellington is the most obvious because, you know, its residents are literally stepping through shit on their way through Willis <laughs> Street. Um, but, it, but across the country, you know, this has been well signalled for at least the last 10 years that there's about, uh, there's you know, between, I think it's about 80 to $100 billion worth of, upkeep that needs to be done on the pipe systems, you know, the things that keep us all from, like, wandering through the roads like fucking medieval peasants. And the worst thing is, like, not only are you stepping over shit to get to work, but then you're stepping under, like, giant golems and dragons and elves and stuff. It's hideous. If they reroute the pipes to the kind of giant wetter figures, so they actually become, like, kind of (laughs) amazing animatronic Shitting goblins. <laughs> no, it'll, 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 it'll be, be a beautiful thing. You'll, just, you'll <laughs> in, instead of taking an Uber to Wellington Airport, you'll be like floating on a little boat between like the giant <laughs> Lord of the Rings statues on either side. I mean, the, you know, and and this is because essentially you can't have people like Andy Foster in charge of huge vital infrastructure. You know, there was an there was a great piece in Stuff, I think, by Joel McManus, where every mayor of Wellington for the last twenty years said, "Oh, this was inevitable, but not my fault." Yeah. And then, and then when pressed on it, said, "Well, I'm just, I'm just some local community kook who decided to stand for local government. Mm. I can't be expected to manage mm. a billion dollar mm. wastewater infrastructure system." And they're right, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, the three waters reform is taking responsibility away from local government. The national policy statement on housing and the urban development authorities is taking authority away from local government. All significant progress in New Zealand involves taking power away from local government. And, you know, and I don't think it'll happen, you know, that it'll be disestablished in one go. But incrementally it will basically wither into being sort of local residence activities associations. Ceremonial mayors, that's where we're heading, is it? That's right, and they can they can turn up to library events and... I kind of feel like it's the opposite. It's like when local government is more local localised, that's when it's most effective. The, the, the further up you push it, the longer it takes to get... Mahi, like the local get, board get level. Mahi done. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's the first week of February, and that means Waitangi is go to www.fillingthomas.co.nz for the deleted 45 minutes further discussion on local government. And And earwax, which I'm sorry we haven't got to yet, Um, Annabelle and I, we've been talking a lot about about earwax. Just Um, biding my time. That's, that's, you know, that's that's, uh, platinum members only. That um, BenThomas.co.nz. The Prime Minister is on her way up. They're already there today. I think it's today members of the Māori Caucus are going to Te Ti Marae, the Lower Marae, which is where, you know, it's more fun and it's where there's been more controversy happen over the years. Uh, I don't know how much we can read into that. 
What else is are we looking out for this week? Annabelle Lee Mather. Well, I've got a helpful suggestion, mm. which is, you know, given the recent COVID scare, why don't we just put our national shit fight on hold for a year and just have a holiday, let Ngāpuhi have a rest? Mm. Give Hone the day off. Everybody just <laughs> just chill. They did that at Ratana this year. They did. Was that that, that that's was the, a slightly that's different the issue. That's the thing. <laughs> just like, yeah. let's just leave it. Everyone's tired. Everybody just likes sunbathe for the mm-hmm. weekend. Mm-hmm. Obviously, use sunscreen and stuff, but everyone's tired. Nobody wants to get up at four a.m. for the dawn march up to That's the Waitangi right. meeting house. But it, you what know, about the it, sausage it, sizzle? Can we keep that? the prime ministerial sausage sizzle is now the sort of formal pillar of our national? Yeah, but what we're, we're going to like just send like sausage packs out to okay. to households or vouchers? Yeah. Um, it, it is kind of an important issue. Well, it's not kind of it. It is an important issue because, you know, we have had that recent flare-up and mm. the government has taken a, a sort of cautious approach to COVID. But it's important to remember that, you know, Northland has some of the worst outcomes in this country, the worst health outcomes. I mean, you can't even get a dentist in Kaiko here. Um, healthcare, all of that stuff, and our kaumatua up there are really, really vulnerable. And as we're seeing overseas, particularly in the states, with you know indigenous populations over there, our indigenous people are being wiped out by this epidemic, and they're the repositories of our matauranga. And so we have to be so careful. And I just I can't understand why the police won't support Hone's, um iwi checkpoints. He's handing out you know, advice about where testing stations are and local healthcare services, it just doesn't make sense to me. The uh, two Māori MPs have announced they're not going. Good on them. Yeah, I think that's awesome. I think that's that's awesome that they're, that they're taking that approach. Yeah, I'm not sure about the need for checkpoints at level one when it's, you know, relatively well controlled. Otherwise, you're essentially making them a, a permanent feature. Um, well, you, you we s- were level one, but there was someone in the community that had the South African strain of COVID. Mm. You know, it's that thing where Māori always criticise, like, why don't you guys take control of your blah, 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 when when things are bad. But when Māori actually do step up, they're criticised for that as well. Oh, I think the checkpoints were extremely useful, I think, during the lockdowns. Um and, and I think they actually fulfilled a function that, you know, maybe the police hadn't, um, you know, you know, when, when you looked at the stats, um, I think it was within the first couple of days of lockdown, you know, police were essentially waving everyone through <laughs> to leave, <laughs> to leave Auckland. Um, I mean, people like particularly some radio hosts whose names we won't mention get very excited about it because it's iwi checkpoint. But if it's if if you said it was a community handing community group handing out flyers yeah. <laughs> with information, which is what but it was is, was the student army be, doing it? Everyone right, yeah, would be yeah, falling yeah, right, over yeah, themselves right. to do profiles I mean, about how wonderful they are. Okay, that's good. That's yeah, sort of. I think that's fair. Um, now, also, actually, just on the COVID <laughs> issue. Um, oh yes. Hey, did you guys watch the Bachelorette NZ last night? I haven't haven't got to, haven't got to it yet. Um, some important COVID intel there. One of the Bachelorette contestants, mm. uh, one of the bachelors, um, described himself as a business analyst uh, working for the government um, on MIQ. Oh. Managed isolation, <laughs> quarantine, oh. um, 
And had he recently visited any rooms at the Millennium Grand Hotel bearing a bottle of wine? Well, I mean, you know, his experiences on the show may explain the recent uptick in romance at MIQ. Uh-huh. Maybe that was made like an important feature. Okay. Um, but I was just sort of thinking, you know, given that we're all pulling together as the team of five million, you know, how, how, how many people on, like, the MIQ and uh, COVID response team get given, like, sort of six weeks off to film a reality TV show? When was it recorded? Well, this is what I'm trying to f- I've, I was Googling, and it was before the end of 2020. So it could, you know, d- did it match up to, you know, you know the, the, the August lockdown? Did it match up to, you know... The, the post-election COVID case in the community. There's definitely room there to monetize some of our quarantine facilities by introducing reality television elements to them. I think mm. you know, like well, you know, the Pullman is about to close down on the weekend. The Pullman, which um, has basically been teeming with COVID, just like just like. The pipes are just full of the shit just going around. Like, the- like on that, that alien, in the Alien movies where they go into the <laughs> thing and there's like the exactly eggs that. and stuff exactly. everywhere. It's, it's, like exa- that. it's exactly like that. Um, and so it's quite right that they're closing it up uh, for, a, for a bit. But, and they're putting CCTV cameras in, but why don't they just go the whole hog and invite people if they want to go? Pullman's a nice hotel, right? Like yeah. it's a five-star hotel. If you want to go there... You have to participate in this reality television, and then we can monetize it. What do you think? Five buggy stars. Um, shit, what's it called? It was <laughs> no, it was it was that American show. It was like a dating show, but they were talking through a wall. Oh, and, it, yeah. Um, I know the one you mean. I haven't watched it, but I've heard about it. They don't get, or is it the Blind dating date? in the dating in the dark one? No. It, mm, I think dating in the darks where they like touch each other, so you wouldn't want that. Like, <laughs> this, Unless they were gloved and this, masked. <laughs> no <Full> PPE. Can I just like, say extremely non-naked attraction? <laughs> where you see, can I just you say judge people entirely by their eyes and the yeah. fit of their like yeah. hazmat suit? Yeah. Like. <laughs> just coming back to Ewe checkpoints, you know, the other good thing about them is oh. that the, the more there is of them, then the less the police have to guard broadcasters' bathroom windows to ensure that Māori aren't climbing through <laughs> yeah, them. I mean, that, it's that alone. Point. It's a great point. Whole, Look, John Banks window. didn't change. Society window. changed. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, I heard a lot of people saying, this is this is like something somebody would say in the 80s. It's like, it's what John Banks said in the 80s. It's what John Banks has been saying all along. All he didn't <laughs> So it was I didn't come up and just come up here in the, on a cabbage boat. Do you remember when he used to say that all yeah. the time? I think I just came in here on a cabbage boat. It's a cabbage boat. Oh, it's a great question. Yeah, no, no, nobody ever really got to the bottom of that. Um, but he basically had sort of seven or eight things he said, and yeah, he just said the them over parliament. and over again. It's the <laughs> People's Parliament. New Zealand needs to wake up. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. 
No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Damien O'Connor was, uh, made some headlines. He's the trade minister, newly appointed trade minister. Um, yeah, that was an interesting decision. And he quite quickly uh, found himself in headlines in both Australia and China. Killing it. When he, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think he later acknowledged he might have misspoke a little bit. He basically said that the Australians might learn a thing or two from New Zealand's diplomatic approach to China, which China, to which China said, quite fucking right. <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly all of its completely independent media ran, you know, lengthy analyses on how Damien O'Connor, you know, scholar, gentleman and <laughs> great political <laughs> genius had identified precisely the error of Australia's ways, which was to say that they were less compliant, deferent and um, subordinate. That's right. They China. needed to show a bit more respect, Yeah, yeah. was what he said, there which were, was... An interesting judged. I, I mean, look, you know, <laughs> Damien O'Connor's just like, hey, I'm mediating here. <laughs> like, I, it's because um, Nanaya Mahuta, actually, the, the newly appointed foreign minister, mm. sort of provided some dramatic foreshadowing of this um, a few weeks ago when uh, she sort of proffered that New Zealand might mediate between China and Australia. Um, and Damien O'Connor obviously like took the ball and ran with it. And <laughs> kind of this is like when Marion McKelly solved the the Middle East peace process. But, but this is there is a particular strain of the New Zealand psyche, whereby we actually believe all of this kind of you know punching above our weight in world affairs sort of Oslo things. derangement syndrome. The, the, when I went to Taiwan on a business junket, um, when I was a reporter. They took us to their Ministry of Defence to tell us about, you know, Taiwan's unique uh, role in the world. Mm. And basically they described themselves in the exact same way that New Zealand describes itself, you know, a little Mm. plucky battler Mm. providing a moral compass for the rest of the world, you know, an ideal ideal of of democracy and liberalism to look up to. And they showed us a map with Taiwan in the centre of the map, just like New Zealand is in the centre of our maps. But there was a big heart over Taiwan with rainbows coming out. And I just sort of thought, you know, all small countries with large neighbours are kind of the same, eh? Um, Absolutely true. Although, I would just pick you up on, our maps don't have New Zealand at the centre of of the map. Well, oh, not that, no, but it it is. It's down the middle. Right. It's not like in the centre. Is it? Or is it down the the, the bottom right? We're dangling off the bottom. Like the bottom right. Bottom right, but dangling off the page. Yeah, maybe like, this is no. This is an internet problem. Like ma- maps that were so- <laughs> maps that were sold in New Zealand used to have wherever you New go Zealand and you click on Google Maps, it's always puts you in the middle. Is that what you mean? So are we in the middle and then Antarctica? Like <laughs> you, you, like you guys spend way too much time online, so you're looking at American maps where America's in the middle. <laughs> no, I'm looking at earwax. No, we're looking online. at we're looking at primary school maps. Um. So, Damien O'Connor, yeah, the best thing about that, I thought, was that the, uh, one of the Australian papers, I think it might have been the Sydney Daily Telegraph, had a headline saying, uh, calling us New Zealand, which I thought was quite good. Yeah. That was... Um, you know, Z as in, as in G. G. <coughs> good times. The, the, uh, <laughs> the, the, really, the big news of this week, uh, which we should pay due attention, was the 
strangely timed release of a big doorstopper of a report from the Climate Change Commission. Uh, the Climate Change Commission was established under the Zero Carbon Act. Uh, was kind of it's kind of roughly a a copy of the British Climate Committee, I think it's called, which was set up by David Cameron. And the idea is that you have this nonpartisan organisation that uh, lays out a, you must call it a roadmap, that's the essential description, it's a roadmap, that sets up a roadmap for New Zealand to meet its obligations under the Paris Agreement. And it was really, it was dropped on, dropped, it was dropped on Sunday in the middle of an Auckland anniversary weekend on, the middle, on two o'clock in the afternoon, three o'clock in the afternoon, it was slightly weird, but still. It should really be a rail line map, shouldn't it? A rail line. Oh, so you mean a tram road. A tram line. Tram track. A light rail. The tram track. Yeah. For um, I don't know. I didn't get it, Toby. <laughs> <laughs> the hovercraft chart. The, the bike lane. The bike lane. <laughs> <laughs> the, the national cycleway. <laughs> the cycleway to um, net, net, net zero carbon. And uh, emissions. Uh, so, so that was that was that that came out. It um, the general response was that it's affordable and achievable. That was what uh, Jacinda Ardern said. The commission itself, Rod Carr, the chair of the commission, said that this this doesn't it doesn't require completely tearing up uh, the room. You know, it's not. It doesn't require a revolution. It requires sort of going further. Um, it's going to cost 1% of GDP, roughly, to do it. Uh, what's it going to mean? Electrifying the cars, getting rid of the fossil fuels in uh, energy. Um, what's the other thing? Cattle and sheep stock numbers. That, that's one of the one of, going to be one of the pinch points, but that's down by 15% by 2050. I mean, it's kind of... Most of it seems not seems, seems manageable. What do you experts think? Do we do we get to have like mass cow sacrifices or something? I'm not sure they're going to do it that way, oh. um, <laughs> uh, but but there are you know the idea is it can be achieved by making them just not fewer cows but better cows. Like we're just going to have better cows. Like what? What's a better cow like? Like bigger cows or less fatty cows or? More, more delicious, so that we don't want dairy. We just want to eat them. Yeah, all of those things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. It's all science. I'm still down for the sacrificing the cows though, myself. I don't. I think if the cow has actually been alive, then I don't. I don't think you achieve what you are setting out to achieve by sacrificing it. Oh, so do we? Do this we get them all spade? Do we spade the cows? I think. Yeah, I think maybe if we I'm have fewer rather than culling them. This is just about achieve. education, so that they make better decisions. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. It's 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 kind of an important moment because it feels as though there's some flesh on the bone now. To, speaking of cows, that it's it, it it actually lays things out. There are going to be three emissions budgets which will be laid out on the way towards the twenty thirty five mark and the twenty fifty mark. And this is the draft the draft report, and the government has to go away, and everyone goes away and consults, and then the final one comes in the middle of the year, and then the government has to actually put things in place. But it means that things really have to happen rather than talking about things happening in the future. Like, for example, at some point someone's going to have to go, we're not going to, we're going to ban all imports of, what do you call them? Cars. (laughs) (laughs) What is the kind of engine? Combustible, combustion, combustion. Yeah. Combustion. yeah. So, so no more, no more, no more gas guzzlers, and it's just going to be electric cars, and it's going to be an Elon Musk paradise. Yeah, and look, and and that 
that by itself is a big change, right? Uh, after 14 years, you know, right now, and Nissan Leaf needs its battery replaced, that's basically as expensive as getting a new car. Yeah. Um, after 14 years, a Toyota Corolla is just getting going. You know, it's just warming up. <laughs> but, um, so, you know, the, the, the era of, you know, cheap cars for New Zealand, yeah. which is, is, you know, I think National described it as an intrinsic part of our lifestyle. And, and it is, you know, it's a, that, that's something that people are used to and that will probably stop in about 10 years. If you look at, now, if you think of one of the, the most postcard uh, scenes is the glorious Auckland waterfront uh, reaching out across the Hodaki Gulf. And if you look down there, you can see thousands and thousands of Toyota Corollas, <laughs> which have just come off come off big ships and are uh, feeding that, that New Zealand dream of cheap offloaded secondhand cars from Asia. Yeah, and look, you know, and and we are we're a long spread out country. You know, it's, it's Auckland could probably Auckland Wellington could go electric relatively more geography easily. from Ben Thomas here. Um, you know, there will be much much more work to be done in the regions. Um, you know, and, and obviously there will need to be big advances in technology as well. I mean, New Zealand buys way too many, you know, twin cab utes. Cab utes. On the other hand, there are people who need, the who need them for, you know, who need them for their travel, for their work. Not the ones I see. Not the ones, that, no, not the ones in Point Chef, <laughs> or, the, or the ones around, you know, me in beautiful St. Mary's Bay in Auckland. Yeah. Um, in fact, you know, if there were to be a revolution, which I'm not in favour of as a free marketeer and a liberal, but if there was, the first thing that should be redistributed is urban Auckland four-wheel drives to the provinces mm-hmm. of New Zealand. Mm, um, I like that. I so, like that. When you when you start running in the councils of the country, that can be your first act. Yeah. No, there won't be any councils. I think. Do we have to do another forty five minutes? <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't think you're getting it. Like, um, and but but you know there. there there will have to be a lot done to create the infrastructure that you'd need to electrify the fleet in the regions. Um, there would there will, there will be there will be big adjustments to people's lifestyles. You know, public transport will have to get much, much, much better. Another thing that councils probably aren't equipped to do. Um, the, you know, the, the one problem with climate change that I've noticed politically is that we often get sold this vision of it's an easy transition. You know, in the 2008 election, uh, you know, hard to believe now, but Labor and National both campaigned as, an, as on the emissions trading scheme and carbon neutrality by 2050, in fact, um, as one of their major planks. And they were both talking about, you know, this was this was just before or just during the global financial crisis. But they were they were telling the story of by securitizing and financializing carbon trading, we'll reduce our emissions to zero and we'll all become carbon trading billionaires. Um, and it's a win 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 win. But the the whole point of you know a lower carbon economy is that you have to stop doing some things that you currently do. You have to pay a price for things that you didn't used to pay a price for. It's it's actually it is actually a sacrifice and. But, but it's I, a sacrifice so that you can hum, humankind and animals other than cows can continue to live, right? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but but I don't think politically our leaders do us any favours by trying to sort of continually soft pedal it because then that then what happens is what happened in two thousand and eight, where the government brought in its emissions trading scheme and everyone celebrated our future as you know, uh, Wall Street bets, carbon traders. <laughs> carbon know, pre- oligarchs. Pre-read it. <clears throat> um, but, 
But then every time a cost was associated with an industry or a consumer group because of the new the new ETS, that caused an uproar. And people were like, no, this was meant to be easy and make us rich. And so what we saw was climb downs and concessions on an industry-by-industry industry basis, um, which really stopped the ETS from having any kind of meaningful impact for, you know, 10 years or so. Um, we don't really have that time anymore. You know, I, I, I think that downplaying the magnitude of what has to happen, because, you know, it is small compared to, you know, shutting down industrialization completely, but it's pretty large compared to the sorts of sacrifices that we would normally have to make. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Rod Carr on the radio, uh, speaking to Catherine Ryan yesterday, was asked whether or not, as someone who'd, who's been around, he's a former deputy governor of the Reserve Bank, I think, among other things, that whether or not it was... Uh, analogous or of similar scale to the reforms of the 80s, the the, the, the sweeping market reforms. And he said, yeah, he said it was on the, of that scale, mm. but that we could plan it more carefully. So it is a big deal. It's a funny thing psychologically, of course, with these things, because you at once want to, whether you go, uh, you know, whether you ring the alarm bells, it's an emergency after all, and go crazy and, and try and scare the bejesus out of people, and try and do that at the same time as going, but it's okay, we can do it. It's all within the existing parameters, within the existing tram tracks. It's a it's a funny one. I think a lot of people tend to just kind of disengage from that, as you probably are with this podcast. Until this they try and buy another Suzuki moment. Swift. Don't at me about the cows on Twitter, okay? I'm not advocating <laughs> people actually be violent to cows. Thank you. It's gone by lunchtime, uh, 2021. Great to be back. Thanks, Annabelle. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, we will be back in a bit. Talo for Lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spinoff member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. Kia ora e te iwi, te Ahe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.